Good morning, everybody. I'll say that again since it's Resurrection Sunday. Good morning, everybody. He is risen. <laughs> you could tell the people with the Lutheran background. They said, he is risen indeed. Everybody else was like, yes, he is risen. <laughs> Amen. Well, like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison, and I am delighted to be here on the Super Bowl of the Christian faith, Easter Sunday. Special welcome to anybody who is visiting with us for the very first time. I see some new faces in the room, and um, a special welcome to those of you who come every week. We're happy for you as well. And as always, we want to say welcome to those of you who are watching us virtually. So glad to have you joining us here on this Easter Sunday morning. If somebody invited you here this morning, they are a good friend, and they love you very, very much because this is an exciting opportunity to be in the house of the Lord today. It's one of my favorite Sundays of the week and I of the of the year I'm excuse, excuse me and I'm very excited to be here today. I'm also excited to be continuing and concluding a teaching series that we've been in for the last several weeks, a teaching series that we're simply calling Good Fights. Good Fights. And we've taken time to clarify each week that we're not talking about entertaining fights, but we're talking about good fights, noble fights, fights that are worthwhile. And we've been leaning on Paul's words to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he tells Timothy to fight the good fight. And week after week, we've said that we've minimally concluded that if there is a good fight to fight, there must also be what? Bad fights, right? And so our goal as Christians, our goals as followers of Jesus, are those uh, pressing into uh, helpful, healthy spiritual life is to avoid the knucklehead stuff, because it's all around us, to avoid the bad fights, but to lean into the good fights. And luckily for us, Scripture is full of wisdom, stories, instructions, and how to know just which is which. What's the good fights? And what is the knucklehead stuff that we are to avoid? And so far, we looked at the story of David and Goliath. On Baptism Sunday, we looked at the fight against our sinful flesh, crucifying ourselves, dying to ourselves, as Jesus instructs us to. Uh, we continue by looking at Jesus as he tussles with the money changers in the temple courts. And last week, we looked at the importance of navigating into personal conflict. We looked at the story of Paul uh, getting into a little bit of a tiff with his ministry companion, Barnabas, in Acts chapter 15. And today, we continue this series and conclude this series with the struggle we all have. Another fight that I believe is a really good fight and that is the struggle, the tussle, the fight that we have with our doubt. The tussle that we have with our doubt. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're more spiritual than I am. Maybe you're holier than I am. Maybe you're more converted than I am. And you don't have any doubts. You don't wrestle with any doubts. But I, if I could be vulnerable, don't let this leave the room or the live stream. Uh, but I wrestle at times with doubt, and doubt is simply a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction, and maybe it bothers you a little bit that your preacher struggles with doubt. Maybe if this is your first Sunday, maybe I shouldn't lead with that, that your preacher struggles with doubt, but if you're honest, you might say, preacher, you're in good company because we also struggle with doubt. I believe that doubt is the subject that maybe we don't talk about enough. The truth is, as Jesus people, we are called to do incredible things. Anybody believe that? Three or four people believe that. That's fine. 
We're called to do incredible things, whether you believe it or not, but only after being asked to believe an incredible story. An incredible story. And never has this been truer than on Resurrection Sunday, where we, we, we say that a dead guy got up. A dead guy is not dead anymore, and he is to be worshipped. I'm leading this fun small group this session based on the Alpha Course. And some of you have heard of Alpha, but Alpha focuses on the Christian basics. And this is a course based out of the UK, and hundreds, thousands of churches all over the world has gone through the Alpha Course because it focuses on the Christian basics uh, and helps people, whether they're seasoned Christians, non-Christians, new to faith, engage the basics of Christianity so they can have a helpful understanding of who Jesus is and who they're invited to be in Christ. Well, part of the, you know, central to the basics of the Christian faith is the story of Jesus, the person, the work, the life, the ministry of Jesus, his virgin birth, the death, burial, resurrection, and so much more. And as I engage with this material, as I'm sitting there watching the video, waiting to have this discussion after the video, I had this thought that I regularly have, and I go, man, this is this is kind of out there. <laughs> you ever had that thought? I mean, especially if you're like me and you are a lifer in this thing, we were born on the pew, we'll probably die on the pew, we're so accustomed to the story until you start hearing certain facts, certain elements of what we're asked to believe, and you go, man, this is out there. And as you wrestle with the fact that this is out there, you wrestle with what people might think of you when they figure out that you believe that which is way out there. And I'm going through this course and I go, man, this is a lot. This is a wild story. We're asked to be, believe a wild story. And after believing this wild story, we're asked to in turn do wild things, not the least of which tell somebody else about the wild things that we suddenly believe now. You hear what I'm saying? And because this is true, we are susceptible to doubt in all of its forms and all of its facets. And I don't entirely believe that it is a bad thing. I don't think it's exclusively bad, which is why I think it's a good fight. It's a worthwhile fight. And I'm simply calling this message this morning, sparring with doubt, sparring with doubt. Now, notice I didn't say grabbing doubt and violently wrestling it to the ground until it's motionless and lifeless, because I believe that our, our engagement with doubt is a little more delicate than that. If you've ever been a boxer, I, I'm not a boxer, by the way. My last fight, I believe, was the seventh or eighth grade, and even then, old Jamar Humphrey got the best of me. But I'm not a boxer. But I know enough about boxing to know that Sparring is a friendly fight, in a sense. They're not necessarily trying to kill each other. Maybe going at medium speed. It's a fight, but it's a different kind of fight. It's a friendly fight. It's more nuanced. There's more to it than just get in there and kill each other. And I imagine that our struggle, our tussle with doubt, falls in the category of sparring rather than violently trying to take it down to the ground. I don't think doubt is the rabbit enemy that we make it out to be. 
Sure, it can push against spirit, the, the spiritual life. It can push against genuine, real, growing Christian faith. But I don't think it's the rabid enemy sometimes that we make it out to be. I would go further to say that even the scriptures don't equate doubt with unbelief. It puts those things in two very different pots. Consider John the Baptist. If you're familiar with scripture, John was the person who was anointed and appointed to go out in front of Jesus to prepare the way for him. And Jesus says, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. This is what Jesus says about John. And yet... In Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3, John is languishing in prison, about to be beheaded, and he sends messengers to Jesus to ask a very pointed question. Can anybody remember what the question is? Are, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? This is not a greater man born of a woman, Jesus says. And yet, in his darkest hour, John doesn't send a message of praise. In gratitude and thanks to Jesus, he says, are you the guy or should we look for somebody else? In other words, I'm having a little doubt about this, about who you are and who you've asked me to be. Even John had his doubts. And suffice it to say, there is in the Christian life, there is in the spiritual life with Jesus, there is room for doubt. And the church said, amen. Maybe you hadn't heard that before. Maybe nobody gave you permission to spar with your doubt, to lean toward it, and to stop pretending that it doesn't exist. There is room for doubt, whether you're a lifelong Christian, whether you're a baby Christian, whether you're just here kicking the tires, peeking into the window, test-driving faith, whether you're the humble skeptic or agnostic with loads of questions, or the sincere atheist, I came all the way down here from my house four minutes away to tell you there is room in the Christian faith for doubt. To put it a different way, Jesus can handle your doubt. And if you're serving a God that can't handle doubt, that folds because you have some questions, you have put the wrong God on the throne of your heart. There is room. There's room for doubt. And today we'll look at a story of a man named Thomas as he wrestles with his doubt in an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Would you meet me in scripture today at John chapter 20? There are Bibles on the edges of your row. Feel free to use those Bibles. By the way, if you don't have a Bible uh, at home that you can understand, feel free to take that Bible as a gift from us to you so that you can have those. And as I always often say, every now and then, if you've gotten in the habit of just taking a Bible a week, you can start to bring those back to us. <laughs> one by one. Just bring one, leave one. That's all. Nobody will say anything. John chapter 20. You can also follow along in your mobile devices or on your tablets or whatever. We'll also be projecting the scripture on the screens while you find that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are resurrected and reigning. I thank you, Lord, that you are not fragile and that you can handle our questions, that you can handle our doubt. And on Resurrection Sunday, as we lean toward you today, as we lean toward your truth, and in a room this size, those watching me online, I got to believe that somebody is returning to you today, 
giving you another shot on Easter Sunday, but they've got questions, and like many of us, they've got issues, and Lord, would you confirm in their hearts that you can handle our issues, that you can handle our questions, that you'll deal gently with us as we lean toward you. Come put power on these words you've given me to speak. Father, would you move the preacher out of the way so that your truth and light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. John chapter 20. I'm going to start at verse 19. And many of you know the story, especially if you're here with us on Good Friday night. By this point in the story, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been arrested. He's been tortured. And he's been crucified. And he dies. Days later, Mary arrives at the tomb early on Sunday morning, not to greet a resurrected Christ, but to anoint the dead body of who they believe to be the Savior. And she discovers he's not there. She goes to tell a few of the disciples the body has been taken. They rush over to verify the story, and sure enough, Jesus' body is not there. A few verses down, the resurrected Christ appears to Mary. She believes... And this is where we pick up the rest of the story in verse 19. It says, that Sunday evening, disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Verse 22. Then he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. That's really important. They told him, they told Thomas later, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hands into the wounds of his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe, my Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. But blessed are those who believe Without seeing me, this is the word of the Lord. And so this is a really interesting text, at least I think so. And as a preacher, you know, when it comes to Easter time, there's really just a handful of the classic texts that we have to choose from. And as a a young preacher, I used to go, oh, Easter again. I got to shuffle the deck of these texts and try to find, right? But these days, it just comes leaping off the page. I see in these pages, the more I walk with Jesus, the more I do this faithful work and vocation of ministry, it just leaps off at me that this is a really special, like a really tender passage that I believe everybody in the room and everybody listening to me on the live stream can get something out of this because this is that rich. This post-resurrection account of Jesus appearing to his disciples. Verse 19 tells us that they're meeting behind locked doors because they're afraid. It's clear that nobody believed that Jesus would be raised from the dead. As much as Jesus said it, right? As much as the scripture point to it, Jesus said it over and over, and nobody 
but nobody believed it. The evidence is that nobody was waiting right there on Sunday morning, waiting for Jesus to peek out and say, hey, I'm back. Instead, they were locked away because perhaps they believed they were next. And so they had to lay low for a while. And suddenly, though the door was locked, Jesus appears, greets them with a common Jewish greeting, peace be unto you. And beyond the greeting, he puts himself on display. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. And as they saw this, they were filled with joy. Now, it's important to note that Jesus isn't just showing off. He's chiding them for their faithlessness, for hiding and being afraid. This visit, as well as other visits that he'll have with his guys, are wrapped in purpose. He's up to something here. We know this is true because in verse 21, he says, Peace be unto you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus is there for a reason, to get them ready for what they would do. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And in so many words, he's saying, it's going to be okay. I'm the real deal. I'm back like I said I'd be back. Let's get back on mission, fellas. I love how Jesus does this. But we learn in verse 24 that one of the disciples, Thomas, wasn't at the meeting. Maybe he didn't get the text. Maybe he was coming, but he saw some people and he ducked back. in. The, the scriptures don't tell us. All we know is, my man, he wasn't there. And today I want to zero in on Thomas, because though we may single my man out, Thomas is me. And don't laugh, because Thomas is you too. You'll see in a minute. They call him Doubting Thomas. How'd you like that? One moment in your life, and you're forever branded as a doubter. I feel bad for Thomas. But I'm drawn to how Jesus handles Thomas and his doubt. It gives me hope and an appreciation for what the revealed, resurrected Christ can do with our doubt and with us. I am equally drawn to how Thomas engages his doubt and how he engages Jesus. He spars with his doubt. He leans toward it and not away from it. And rather than shaming Thomas, might we learn from him today? Might he and Jesus teach us something in this faithful and ancient text? I see at least three things in here. There's more, but I'm going to be disciplined today and talk to you about at least three as Thomas spars with his doubt. The first is the obvious is Thomas has his doubts. Thomas has his doubts. And by now, you should have received permission to doubt. So when I ask you, can you relate, you can shake your head and publicly acknowledge it. Thomas has his doubts. They came to Thomas excited. They said, bro, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas says, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hands into the wounds in his side. Now, what's interesting about this is that I've come to, over the years, read a sassy tone into how Thomas says this. I don't know, whenever I read this, I hear defiance. 
I picture him with his arms crossed, scowl across his face. But like I said last week, none of that is in the text. And it could just be that the first preacher I heard preach this, he read it kind of mean. He had a sort of sassy kind of thing on his voice. And here we see Thomas being defiant and sassy when the scriptures don't give us that fact. And I believe this is where it cements this notion that Thomas is a doubter. And it's not that he's not a doubter, he is. But is he any different than the others? Is he any different than the others? When I read what Thomas says, I hear him say, I won't believe until. I won't believe, and he gets real descriptive about what he wants to do and what it might take for him to move from a place of doubting to a place of belief. It's also important to note that Thomas's response was in response to the disciples telling them about what they had just experienced. They themselves are fresh and excited off an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. They've seen what Thomas wants to see. They've experienced what Thomas wants to experience. And Thomas isn't saying, y'all are lying. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you're lying. He's saying, I want to see too. Now, why is this important? While doubt can be a major hindrance, it is very common. As we have permission to agree with now, especially considering what we've been asked to believe and what we've been asked to respond to, it's very common. And somebody today needs to hear that doubt will not disqualify you. Not necessarily. There are worse things than doubt. You might say, like what, preacher? Well, maybe like cynicism. I don't read cynicism in Thomas's reply. You say, well, cynicism, cynicism, like you know everything. You know, you know, you know a cynic? They're kind of annoying, aren't they? How are you 17 and know everything? You ain't been anywhere. When I was 17, I knew everything. I hadn't read any books. I hadn't gone anywhere. But ask me a question. I knew it. I knew how to raise kids. I knew how the country should be run. I knew everything my parents were, done wrong, were doing wrong. I knew everything and nothing at the same time. Cynics, they've been there. They've done that. They know everything. You can't do anything with a person like that. There are worse things than doubt. Worse than cynicism? Indifference. Indifference says, I don't care. I don't, I don't care. Like, I don't even want to talk about it. What? We, G, Jesus, what? I thought, that's, that's so two days ago, man. Thomas is not being cynical. He's not proclaiming what he knows. He's not throwing out facts. He's not trying to drop any knowledge, nor is he indifferent. He simply is doubtful. Because dead people didn't just like get up like on a regular basis. 
It wasn't often that God would say, you know, shroud himself in human flesh, climb up on a cross, give up the ghost, and then come back and say, follow me again. Thomas is like, hey, we did all of that once before, man, and like, you died on us. He's not cynical. He's not indifferent. He just, he just wants to see for himself. I told you about the Alpha course we're taking, and Nicky Gumbel, who leads the Alpha course, he said that when he was in college, he, he, he was praying that he didn't get one of them crazy Christian roommates, but he did. Well, he didn't at first. His roommate wasn't a Christian until he started going off to the Christian meetings and came back a Christian, him and his girlfriend. He said, look, I, I got to get him out of here. So he decided to read the New Testament so that he could have enough information to rescue his friend <laughs> from the grips of these crazy Christians. And when you know it, he became a Christian himself. <laughs> He's just wrestling with doubt. You can read a statement a couple of different ways. You guys are lying. It's not that. Or you can hear him saying, I want my own encounter. I want my own encounter. I want to see for myself. I'll believe it when I see it. I want to see the dead guy who isn't dead anymore. I want his living body in front of me to erase the saltiness and perhaps embarrassment that I'm feeling right now because I've given so much of my life and, and so much of my reputation to this guy. I, I need to see what you guys are. So I, I see the smiles on your face. I hear your excitement. I trust you guys. I know you're not liars, especially after all we've gone through. But is it too much to ask if I could just, if I could just see him for myself? The whole entire trajectory of the rest of my life hangs on whether or not if any of this is true. Guys, please don't judge me in this moment. Please. All I want to do is just, I want to see him for myself. I want to touch his hands for myself. He just wants his own encounter. He needs it. And guess what? So do you. So do you. I say it to the lifelong Christian, like myself, been in church my whole life. And many of those years, I was just borrowing the fumes of my parents' faith. I didn't have any choice anyway as to whether I would go to church. My daddy would tell us, hey, you're going to live in this house, you're going to either be a Christian or you're going to pretend like it. And he was only, you know, he was only half joking. And so that first night, that I spend in my dorm room at the University of Illinois, I resonate with the need for me to have my own experience with Jesus, my own encounter. It's the only way that you can have a vibrant Christian faith. It's the only way that you can have a rich and satisfying life with Jesus. My man said, I need my own. I wonder who among us that resonates with you. I need to see it. He's honest enough to be real about it, and so, so should you. You say, preacher, why are you leaning on this so hard? Because church can teach you to just be little pretenders. Isn't that true? There's tremendous social pressure when you start hanging around Christians to do what the other Christians do until you discover that some of them are pretending. They don't get the joke. They're just laughing. They haven't really been touched by Jesus. They haven't really had their own experience. 
They're just doing what the person next to them is doing. And you know what? Sometimes that person is just doing what the person next to them is doing, which is totally okay because sometimes you have to belong before you believe, but, but, but the goal should be to get your own encounter. And I would say, you don't have to pretend here. If you ain't happy, like, don't smile. If you don't understand what I'm saying, don't say amen. You don't got to pretend here. You can ask your questions. You can not get it. Because there was a time when we didn't get it and somebody had to say, well, well, here's how that works. Or just stick around a little bit longer. You don't need to be a pretender. Fake encounters don't transform you. Going along with it doesn't transform you and set you on fire so that the world can come and watch you burn. The only thing that sets you on fire is a real encounter with Jesus. Thomas has his doubts. He's wrestling with it. And that's the sweetest thing. Actually, it's not the sweetest thing. The second sweetest thing is what happens next is that Jesus meets him right where he is. That's the sweetest thing to me. We're instructed often to come to Jesus, but I chuckle at that these days because isn't it often the case that Jesus has to come to us? I just laugh and people say, I found Jesus when I was... 16, Billy Graham crusade, I found him. You didn't, you didn't find Jesus, bro. He wasn't lost. You were. He came and found you in the jug joint. At the all-nighter. In the strip club. With your good time buddies. Or by yourself. And your skepticism an anti-Christian vibe. He came and got you. How'd he come got me? He, he, that, 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 that co-worker just wouldn't leave you alone. Inviting you to everything they had down at the church. Or you couldn't watch something on TV without a commercial coming up or some preacher or somebody handing you something of, of, of a Christian nature. Couldn't scroll on Facebook without the algorithm putting something that would never come up on your feed, on your feed, and here you are, not because you found Jesus, because Jesus came and got your raggedy self from whatever your raggedy self was doing when you were raggedy. <laughs> the grace of God reached for you, came and got you right where you were, in your doubt, in your fear, in your shame, in your mess, in your struggle. He came where you were. Verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with him. The doors were locked. You thought you could keep it out. And Jesus, as smooth as he is, no locked door can keep him out. He shows up. Aha! Peace be unto you. After he's walked through the walls. Then he said to Thomas, notice who he comes to. Everybody else in there, they, they're good. They're still behind the locked door, but they're on their way. But he knows Thomas wasn't in the room. 
And he says to Thomas, exactly what Thomas needs to hear, put your finger here, son, and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. And he charges Thomas to what? Believe. Christ is so merciful. He could have handled him so differently. He could have said, Thomas, we don't wasted eight days, man. Where were you at? You weren't at the meeting? You didn't get the text? He could have said, man, you walked with me. You passed out the food after I multiplied it. You saw people get up out of the grave. Like, I said all of this, bro. Where were you at? He could have handled him a million different ways. Instead, he mercifully grants him his very own encounter. Get this, on Thomas's terms. How do we know these are Thomas's terms? This is precisely what Thomas said he needed to do. I need to fondle the wounds in his hands. I need to see his side, because I, I heard what happened to him. People don't come back from that. And Jesus shows up and gives them exactly what he asked for. How merciful. This is the king of kings. He don't have to stoop and do all our terms, but this is what Thomas needed. This is what he needed. He mercifully grants him his very own encounter, and he doesn't shame him. And I'm struck by how important human dignity is to Jesus. Especially when your heart is right. Especially when you're humble and you're scared. Especially when you don't know everything yet and you know you don't know everything yet. Jesus is so tender. Now, Jesus handles roughly those who need to be handled roughly. Make no mistake, we just saw that a couple weeks ago. But that those who are humble and scared, my Jesus deals tenderly with him. And I wonder how Christ might be calling us to be more comfortable and be more honest with our doubt, knowing that he is faithful to meet the humble where they are. Anybody struggle with doubt? I know I keep asking that, but I'm hoping more and more people, as I keep asking it, will, will become honest and say, you know what, now that you mention it, since you put it that way, like, I struggle with doubt too. I struggle with doubt. At times, I don't say it out loud because, you know, my job and everything, but I wonder, is this real? Like, is this real? Like, we bet the farm on the wrong thing. Like, did I drag 11 other people here? Like, is this legit? Honestly, often, I don't have doubts about, like, the reality of faith. But some of the hard things that Jesus asked me to believe and therefore champion is the chief servant here at this church who is instrumental in setting policy and helping shape our theology and therefore our practice. Sometimes I'm, like, wrestling with the truth, and I'm like, do we have to believe all that? I say that because in my position, there is tremendous social pressure to, to bend in a lot of places. 
And maybe you resonate with this. You're not in vocational ministry, but you, re you wrestle with this too. You look in the scriptures, and the scripture says, love everybody. And you say, you know, everybody? What if they're a bleeding heart liberal like everybody? What if they're a gun-loving conservative like everybody? What if they're gay? We gotta love everybody. In this cultural moment, like that's a real question for some of us. In this cultural moment, there's tremendous pressure to look at the Christ-centered sexual ethic as Christ lays it forth in Scripture and ask, like, is all, like, we still got to do all that? Are the foul lines of our human sexuality, like, like, we still, is that, is there a new edition coming out? I'm telling you a real struggle I have, look, we can fill this place up a little faster if we just move the foul lines out a bit. One man, one woman, is that still? I'm just trying to bring you into where I struggle. And perhaps where you struggle. And some of us like, Lord, are you real? Other of us have squared that away. It's just the individual hard truths. And if you know everything already, you can't wrestle with your doubt. If you're indifferent and you don't care, you can't wrestle the thing to the ground like you're supposed to wrestle the thing to the ground so that you might live and be who you've been called to live and be. And all of a sudden, this doubt conversation goes beyond, is Jesus real? And it gets down to the granular truths that govern who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live. Anybody other than me, Wrestle with any doubt? I thought so. Now we're getting a few yeses. Somebody's waking up today. And so Jesus' tenderness toward Thomas helps us to understand that maybe he might be tender toward us if we're honest. But I also think that Jesus might be calling us to be more tender with other people who have doubts. Because that's super important. Because Jesus' action, his lean toward Thomas, as Thomas leans towards his doubt, produces a certain result. And that result is the third thing I see in this text, and that is that Thomas believes. Uh, Thomas believes. Now, the interesting thing is that testimony was important. The other disciples show up and say, hey, we've seen, right? And this sort, of, this sort of gets the wheels turning. But testimony was not the catalyst for Thomas's belief. The catalyst was his very own encounter with the resurrected Jesus, which is what we all need. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And what was Thomas's reply? My Lord, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas could have replied a thousand different ways. 
He could have said, Jesus, it's you. But he didn't call him by his name. He called him by his title. My Lord, my God. That has a different ring to it. See, when you're familiar with Jesus, when you heard about him, when you hung out with him just a little bit, he's Jesus. Yeah, from Nazareth. That's Mary's boy. I, I know him because you can know something and not know something. You know what I'm saying? You can know somebody and not know somebody. Here's this dead man. He ain't dead no more. And all the stuff that he used to say about himself comes rushing back. And when Jesus goes into that tomb, he's humiliated on that cross, at least for the disciples, all the stuff he said, all the good he did, it didn't even matter anymore. Because either Jesus is lying, he knows he's not the Messiah, and he's lying, which means he's a snake, he's a scoundrel, or he's not the Messiah and doesn't know he's the Messiah, which means he's delusional and crazy. Or, what's the only other option? Or it's true. And so they were wrestling with those first two until they saw him for themselves. And as they saw him for, his, for themselves, all the stuff that he said about himself that must be true too. And so this isn't just Jesus anymore. This is my Lord, my God. And I wonder who he is to you this morning with your Easter clothes on. With your Cornish hens in the crock pot. Oh, that's Jesus. Is he Jesus? Or is he my Lord and my God? See, Jesus can't tell you what to do. But your Lord can tell you what to do. See, Jesus doesn't have anything to say about who you sleep with. But your Lord might have a thing or two to say. Jesus got nothing to say about how you spend your money or how you steward your resources and time, but your Lord and your God says, bring it to me. And I wonder, do you know him? Now, I told you earlier, you ain't got to lie in here. You can be honest in here. Don't pretend with me. But who is he to you? text tells us that Thomas believes, and the fruit of his belief is what he calls Jesus now, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, Jesus isn't throwing shade. You can read it in that tone, but I don't believe he's, he's throwing shade. I believe that Jesus is signaling that we won't have seen him. But we are tasked to carry a heavier load because we don't get to fondle the hole in his hands. We are tasked to believe him 
without seeing him. We're tasked to spar with our doubt, wrestle it to the ground, so that we might receive and faithfully respond to him. Worship team, you can come back as I land the plane. Where are you today? You nursing any doubt? You nursing any uncertainty? You're locked behind something today that you think might keep Jesus out. And yet, he sends a sweaty preacher five minutes from the house to read your mail this morning. Not to condemn you, not to wag my finger in your face, but to ask you the earnest question, who is Jesus to you? You say, preacher, I have my doubts. Good, Thomas has your doubts. Your preacher has your doubts. If, you, if you're going to come back next week, <laughs> I'll probably have some more doubt next week. But Jesus is faithful to meet you right where you are. Right where you are. But what he's driving you toward is belief. Not just a casual awareness not just sort of an Easter Sunday kind of, but my Lord and my God. And all the implications thereof. My earnest question to you is where are you today? Now listen, I know many of you, and so I know many of you have been Christians for many years. But you need to hear that your proximity to the things of God doesn't necessarily mean nearness to Jesus. And so some of us in our spiritual formation, we've been coached to pretend. And here's why we're 10 years in, 20 years in, and we haven't gotten any, like we haven't gotten any victory in our life. We don't have a burning, hot, rich, satisfying relationship with Jesus because hey smile when everybody smiles cry when they cry raise your hands when they raise their hands and just come back and do it again on Sunday can we stop that and so if that's you my charge is to bring Jesus your doubts your questions like the real ones so that he might faithfully meet you there today Others of you are on the other end of the spectrum and you're just peeking in the window of faith today. You're just trying to see what this is all about. But you've got questions. You've got doubts. Jesus can handle those too. And the goal of all of this is that no matter who you are and where you are on the spectrum of faith, that you would just take one step closer to Jesus than you were when you walked in the door. Just one step closer. To some of you, that means that you'll surrender your life to Jesus. Others of you, that means you'll recommit your life to Jesus. Others of you, you'll stop pretending. Whatever that might be, as we continue with this final worship song, my prayer is that the Spirit would minister to your heart as we sing this final song. And so if you can, would you stand with me as we sing one final worship song? And I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are resurrected and reigning, that you can handle our doubts, you can handle our questions, you can handle our fears, 
Come, Holy Spirit, as we do business with you. We've come to meet with you. We've come seeking, searching. As we lean towards you, would you lean towards? Come, Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.